that. I want to invite everyone, if you have a Bible, to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3. So we are, uh, we're continuing in the series that we've been doing for a while now on Revelation. And I say for a while, but we really are just getting started. So uh, we're, we're in week seven of this. And what we've been doing with, with this whole series is we've been sort of trying to retool how we think about and talk about this book. Because a lot of times when people talk about this book, it's in terms of, it's almost as if the thing were kept in a time capsule and just opened up sometime in the middle of, the, of like the 20th century. And someone read it and was like, oh, we're all going to die. And it's going to be like from fire and like lava coming up out of the ocean or or whatever. And so this book has been used to freak people out for generations. And, and one of the things that I think we need to reclaim is what this book actually is and what it is. Originally, this was meant to be a letter written to seven different churches in ancient Turkey. And so when the people who received it in ancient Turkey, the first thing they thought was, oh, this is really good news. And so one of the, we're trying to sort of reclaim what this book actually is. And so before we get into like the larger themes of the book, one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to explore, okay, who, who were the original recipients of this book? Because what's really helpful, actually, is that in, in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, you have these seven mini letters written to these seven different churches all through uh, ancient Turkey. And so what we're doing is we're looking at each of the seven letters and we're asking, okay, why did they receive this letter? How, did, how would they have received it? And why, upon receiving it, would they have realized or why would they have felt like oh this is good it, this this is a beautiful message of hope and grace that, that we have received here and so how it has become the thing that it has become to us that's a whole other question we'll get to that eventually as we journey through the series but right now we're just asking like okay whose mail are we opening basically so in revelation chapter three we are looking at this is the sixth of the seventh letters we have we have one one to go next week we'll, we'll look at the last letter and then we'll, we'll be able to move on uh, so today we're looking at a letter written to a city called Philadelphia in ancient Turkey. And so uh, that's, that's, the, that's the group of people who received this particular one. So in verse, that was su- super eloquently put, wasn't it? So in, uh, in verse 7, this is where we are. It says, to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And so essentially what he's saying is these are the words of Jesus. Like this, is, this guy, John, is writing, but essentially in some like mysterious, divine kind of way, he's writing in the, like, with the words of Jesus. And so in verse 8 then, it says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So there's this interesting thing that happens right at the beginning of this letter where there's a lot of very big language about the, the keys of David and like there's an open door. And, and so there's lots of very large things. And I wish we had more time to get into these images today. And as we go through the series, we'll, we'll revisit some of this stuff. But today what I want to look at is if, what if you stripped away all of the big language that's going on? What if you took all of the symbolism? What if you took all of the big poetic language that's going on here? And what if you just got to the core of what he's saying? Because what does he say? After he gets through all this big language, what does he say? He says, I know that you have little strength. So what we find in this particular letter is that he's writing to people who, up, like beyond anything else, he's writing to a group of people who are, he describes as, you have little strength which is super interesting. Now, another thing that's interesting is among the seven letters to the churches, and you guys have seen this if you've been with us for the series, is like he usually has something very encouraging and also something very harsh to say. And so a lot of the letters have like, you, you, like these things are good, but you have lost your first love or you've, you've fallen asleep. You need to wake up or something along those lines. In this letter to the people in Philadelphia, he has zero things to say in terms of like criticism or correction. There is not a single word of frustration or you need to do this in this particular letter. It shows up in the other letters, but in this letter to Philadelphia, 
you never see that. All, like this entire letter is made up of encouragement and empowerment. Which, which again, like it raises the question, why, why exactly is he writing this? Well, he's writing, or why is he writing it like this? And the reason is because he's writing to people who have little strength. Because when you have little strength, like telling someone who, who is like completely drained of all of their energy and strength and will to like start giving them a list of things that they need to do is not very helpful. Because there comes a point where you, like, you feel like there's nothing you can do. You feel completely powerless in whatever your situation is. So I think before we go any further into this, one of the questions we have to ask is, what does this feel like? Do we understand, at the very least, can we identify with the group of people receiving this in terms of what does it feel like to have little strength? So maybe that's where we need to begin. Maybe we need to begin with, do you know what that feels like? Do you know the emotion of feeling as if you have little strength? Like maybe... Well, I mean, if, if, you have, if you have small kids, perhaps, like, <laughs> you're already laughing. Like, if you have small kids, maybe you, you've had one of those days where you woke up and you thought, like, okay, today we're going to get some stuff done. We're going to have a good day. It's going to be great. We're gonna, it's going to be one of those days where we build memories as a parent. And then by 11 o'clock, you're like, can I please put them to bed already? <laughs> and so, like, you haven't even had lunch and you're, you're co- completely exhausted of your kids. And, like, no one here would ever admit to that. But I'm saying, like, if you know somebody that that's happened to, thank you. <laughs> Um, I got an amen from the front row um, because sometimes it's hard and sometimes like, well, like d- despite all of your best effort, it's just like, I just can't do it today. Like you, like you, you woke up with all these, these great ideas and by like before noon, like they've already won, you know, like you, you've lost every single battle you can possibly fight today. And so you just want to start over and try again, or maybe it's in your work. Maybe you have a job where sometimes you go and you feel like, Okay, today was one of those days where I got to do all the stuff that I'm good at. And I got to do all the stuff that I feel like this is why I got into this line of work. But then maybe there are other days where you go and you you spend like maybe 10 hours at work and maybe 10 minutes of that was something that you actually enjoy doing. Because all the rest of the time was just you spent like crossing things off of lists or meeting with people that you don't necessarily even need to meet with. But it's just something that's expected of you. Or maybe it's just like you, you ended up having to check other people's work and that slowed you down from doing your own work. And so you got to the end of the day and you, you look back. And you thought, like, this is not at all why I do the work that I do. And tomorrow I just want to call in sick just because I can't stand the thought of having to do all of that again tomorrow. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so, like, there's this sense of, like, there's this thing that you do. And whatever it is, like, every time you come home, you're more and more drained than you were the day before. And it's not because it's hard work. It's just because it's, it's tedious. It's, it's work that kind of, in, what, in some way, kind of, like, sucks your soul out of your body some days. Or, or maybe it's, like, a relational thing. Like, maybe you've, you've had, like, a good friendship. Or maybe you've had some sort of connection with somebody and something broke down. You were betrayed. Someone said something. Someone did something. And now that isn't the thing that it was anymore. And so not only do you feel broken down from that relationship, but there's also sort of this fear and anxiety about like why would I want to be friends with anybody if that kind of thing can happen? And so like you have in that context you have little strength. I, I would rather just stay home and do nothing than interact with people who will hurt me. And so there comes this point of like why like you have like you have little strength in that situation. Or maybe it's nothing specific. Maybe it's just like like a season of life kind of thing where everything seems <clears throat> seems to cost you more than it used to, or everything just seems to wear you out faster, or like there's something going on. And for one reason or another, like, you feel like my soul, like, is just, like, it's almost like I'm leaking a little bit. Like, I just can't hold on to whatever energy or excitement that I used to have. And so, in a small way... This is, this is the mentality of the people that John is writing to. We have, and so before we go any further, before we can really explore what's going on here, we have to take ourselves mentally to a place where we understand what it feels like to have little strength. 
because that's who he's writing to. He's writing to people, for whatever reason, they feel completely depleted. They feel kind of lost in their own world. And so do you know that, that emotion? So when you can understand that emotion, all of a sudden you can sort of connect with the kinds of people that John is writing to. Now, this raises the question, though, why do they have little strength? Because when, like, as we've been, been exploring this, a really helpful thing has been throughout the study of this book has been to begin to ask the question, okay, what's going on beneath the surface that we don't see that perhaps has sort of contributed to why he's writing what he's writing? So take a look at verse 9. So immediately after he says the thing about, I know you have little strength, in verse 9 he says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So now we have sort of some some backstory, some rationale as to, okay, why do they have little strength? Well, it has something to do with this group of people that he refers to as the synagogue of Satan, which is probably not a name that they gave themselves. Um, (laughs) Unless it's like a death metal band. Uh, it's, probably, um, it's probably a name that John has specifically given them. Now, um, this is actually the second time that we've seen this phrase show up already in this book. And we've talked before about how there's a couple of different theories about who this group of people, the synagogue of Satan, who exactly they were. Um, the theory that I tend to buy into, the theory that I, th- I think is probably most uh, compatible with w- what's going on here, is that, okay, well, first of all, you have to understand, this is not about being anti-Jewish. That's actually been, it, this, this phrase has been used in that context before, and quite frankly, that's a little evil, and it's, that's totally not at all what's going on here. The guy writing this, John, is Jewish. The people he's writing to are Jewish. So this is not about them being Jewish. This, has something, this is about something else. And so what he's, what he's saying here is he's saying this group of people have in some sort of way done something against you. And so um, the, the dominant theory that I tend to subscribe to that I, that I think is probably most cohesive to what's going on here is that there was another group of people in several of these cities, including Philadelphia, who were religious fundamentalists. And essentially, they, they were at odds with the church because if you were, because the church, this group of people that John is writing to have bought into a story about Jesus that's all about love and grace and forgiveness. This is a story that continues to insist that the work is done and that you are loved by God. However, you have this other group of people, and we know that this group of people existed because the whole book of Galatians is written as a refutation to this group of people. So there's this other group of people who have come alongside several of the churches in this part of the world and have essentially argued, no, God doesn't love you just like you are because you have to go through all of these other sorts of rituals and routines in order to earn God's love. And so one of the things they were arguing for was like everybody has to be circumcised or uh, you have to eat specific dietary, you have to abide by specific dietary rules or you have to make sure you're not wearing cloth of two different types of, um, of fabric. And so you have to make sure you're going through all these different rituals because if you don't, then God does not love you. And so you have one group of people who have a very rigid view of who God is, and you have this other group of people in the church who have a very free, rich idea of who God is, and one and this other group of people has like really, really negative, dark things to say about the other group of people. So apparently, you have one group of people who have a religion that has caused them to be harsh and cruel to another group of people. So this only happened thousands of years ago. This is something that is totally irrelevant to anybody you've ever met. And so... Uh, but let's just pretend like we understand what that looks like. And so, and so now you've got, you've got these two groups of people who are at odds with each other. And by the way, when, and again, you've never observed this, but maybe if you, if you can imagine, when you have a group of people who believe, when you have a person who believes that they are defending the Almighty from you, then all of a sudden that gets really, really dark and really violent and vicious. 
Because when someone believes that they are defending God from the likes of you, all of a sudden, like all the rules are gone and all of our humanity has gone to the, to the wayside. And so you have this idea of this group of people who have basically made, made life like a living nightmare for this group of people in the church. Because it's not just like they're disagreeing. It is they are... There are lots of theories in terms of, like, they're they're probably spreading a lot of really negative rumors throughout the city about this group of people, making it hard for them to do business or making it hard for them to interact in a social sort of way. And so really creating lots and lots of division between the church and everybody else. And so, in fact, it's this really interesting thing. He calls them the synagogue of Satan. So, which, again, not like the most flattering thing you can call someone. Um, This word, Satan, we really probably need to get into what this is. So, in Hebrew... It's actually a transliteration of a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word is ha-satan. Now, this is not a like proper first name for an individual. Ha-satan, literally in Hebrew, is the word accuser. So it's really, really interesting that he's interacting, he's talking about this group of people who have essentially started like spreading really, really dark negative words about the church. And the way he describes this group of people, he said, he, essentially he calls them a group of accusers. And so, he sa- and, and so he's saying, like, I realize that this group of people has made your life a living hell. And I know that you have little strength. Which is why, by the way, look how he says, look at how he ends verse 9. This really interesting thing. He says, and remember, he's speaking in the voice of Jesus. And he says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Why do they need this group of people to acknowledge that God loves them? Because their whole thing is that, they don't, is that God doesn't love them. Because they're not fulfilling all of the checkboxes and they're not going through all of the rituals. And so if you have a group of people who are continuing to insist that no, you are not loved by God, then a beautiful thing to say is, or for, for God to say in this context is, actually you are. And whatever they say, it's not true. They, you have, essentially he's saying you have believed a lie about you. And so there's this really interesting thing where when we become subject to the voice of an accuser, all of a sudden it becomes like really corrosive and deadly to our soul. Have you ever walked into a room full of people and you instantly get the sense that everybody's been talking about you? Have you ever, um, have, have you ever seen someone post something on the internet and realize that they're subtly talking about you? Have, have you ever, uh, because none of us has ever been in high school, have you, ever, have you ever all of a sudden found people who have developed an opinion about you that is completely unfounded and unfair and there's nothing you can do about it? So you know that this is like what this does to, to your soul. Like there is some sort of dark thing that happens when we become the object of, of, the, of the voice of the accuser. Whenever the voice of the accuser targets your soul all of a sudden it does way more damage than putting people in jail ever could. There is something really, really dark and hostile about the voice of the accuser. There's this book that I read uh, towards the end of last year. Fantastic book, by the way. Highly recommend it. It's called So You've Been Publicly Shamed by, by a guy named John Ronson. Excellent. I think, every, I think every Christian needs to read this book because what it is, it's a, 
it's sort of a social look at, here's what it looks like when people begin to get really, really cruel to each other on the internet, which Christians are great at. And so what happens in this, what he kind of gets into in this book is he sort of goes through several case studies and he talks about like, okay, there was this woman who said something on Twitter that she, she meant as a joke. And then someone took it and did not take it as a joke and ended up like retweeting it to a bunch of people. And then up, like up to like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, all of a sudden kind of swarmed on this lady and basically made her life a living nightmare to, up to the point where she had to, like she lost her job. Like, like people, she be like, if you Google this person's name to this day, you will find like all the things that people said about her in like the most hostile, violent, negative way. And so like John Ronson in the book interviews, like several people that this has happened to. And one of the things you find is like specifically, like one of these women talks about, like she said, like over for over a year or so, I couldn't leave my house because every time I would go anywhere, like if I would just go to the grocery store, I would feel like everybody here has seen me on Twitter. And everybody here has said all of the really angry, negative things about me. And so every time she was with anybody, all she heard were the accusatory voices that people had like subjected her to for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so she became kind of a recluse for a really long time. It, ruined, it literally ruined her life. And so like, how in the world can people typing things into a phone or into a computer do that much damage to a person's soul? Well, it's because that's what it does. Like the, like the voice of the accuser, like when we begin to believe the lies about us and when we begin to believe that everybody else believes the lies about us too, all of a sudden we become less and less and less human in our own eyes. We become less and less of who we really are. And so this book brilliantly sort of explores like here, here are all the ways that humans can actually be really, really terrible to each other and here are the ways that maybe we can do better. And so the thing is you don't need to have been attacked by people on Twitter to understand what the voice of the accuser sounds like. Everybody gets this. Everybody understands. Everybody has a lie about them that at one point or another we've believed. Like, for example, if you've ever, if, if you've ever sat and thought to yourself, I think everybody here is judging me. What is that? Is there a voice in your head that continues to insist that you are not good enough and that everybody else is quietly thinking that? Or, or how about this one? You are ruining your kids, and everybody knows it. Has anybody, you know what I mean? Or um, there's absolutely nothing worth loving about you. And so there are all these voices. Or you're a total fraud, and any minute now, everybody's going to figure it out. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? So there there are these voices that we carry around with us the voices of the accuser that continue to insist that we are unloved, that we are unworthy of love, and that we are never, ever going to be enough. And what this does is it peels away at our own souls. We all understand what it sounds like when the accuser speaks in our, in our own head. And so, in fact, uh, in the book of Romans, if you take a look at Romans chapter 16, this guy Paul is writing to this church in ancient Rome. And he says this in verse 17. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them. In other words, there are people in your midst. There are people who dwell among you that you see every single day who are actually creating lots and lots of hostile things about you. They're actually making life harder in lots of ways, and they're in, almost intentionally so. And so in verse 18, he says, For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience. So, which is interesting. So he says, there are people out 
out there who are totally chipping away at who you are and how people see you. And then he kind of like builds them up a little bit in verse 19. And he says, everyone has heard about your obedience. So I rejoice because of you. And so which, why does he feel like he has to say that right there? Because he's talking to people who feel like they've been attacked by everybody. And so he has to stop and be like, you're actually a lot better than you think you are. And, and then he says, um, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And then in verse 20, check this out. He says, the God of peace or the God of shalom will soon crush Hasatan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So some stuff is going, going on in within and among the church in Rome. And Paul is acknowledging it. Like there's some really dark stuff and there are people around you who have basically given, like become the voice of the accuser in your midst. And then he, he starts by saying like, we all know that you guys are doing your best. And then he says, and the God of peace, or like when this, the word we talk about a lot around here is the word shalom, which is the idea of God is putting everything back together the way it was always meant to be. He says the God of shalom will soon crush the accuser under your feet. In other words, those voices that you hear that chip away at who you are, there will come a point where those voices become silent. And then, and then he follows that with the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And the idea of grace is the idea that we are constantly receiving something that is good and beautiful and healthy and holy in the world. And so it's this really interesting thing where Paul talks about like the Hasatan, the voice of the accuser, which by the way, is it not fascinating that the word that has become like the personification of evil is the word that talks about what it sounds like when, when we begin to believe lies about ourselves. Is that, is it not fascinating that the word accuser is the word that gets used most often to describe what evil is like in like flesh and blood. I find that like incredibly fascinating. And so Paul talks about like, listen, I know that you've begun believing the lies about yourself. But what's going to happen here is we're going to quiet the voices. We're going to quiet the lies. And instead, what does he talk about instead? He talks about grace and peace. Isn't it interesting that when Paul talks about silencing the voices of the accusers, he talks about grace and peace. He talks about these things that we are constantly invited to participate in. Is this beautiful thing. What does he say to the people in, in Revelation? He says... I will come to you and I will, I will make this group of people, I will make your accusers remind you that you actually are loved by God. And so um, go back to Revelation 3, actually. Take a look at that. Um, it's this beautiful thing. We, we all understand. We all, we've all heard the voice of the accuser. We all understand what this feels like. And it's a beautiful thing when someone reminds us that, no, 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 this is actually about grace and peace. So in Revelation 3... Uh, I wish we had more time to just get into all this imagery. There's just so much going on in here. So then in verse 12 of Revelation 3, after he's done the whole bit about um, the synagogue of Satan and the accuser and all that kind of stuff, in verse 12, he writes this. He says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never will, never again will they leave it. And so he uses the image of a pillar. Now, the reason this is fascinating is that in the city of Philadelphia at this time, for about the past 30 to 50 years prior to the writing of the book of Revelation, the city of Philadelphia had actually suffered several, probably three or four devastating earthquakes. And so this, this was a city. In fact, so it was so bad that several people who had lived in the city prior to this, like after like the first or second earthquake, they began to move out among the rural communities outside the city limits in order to keep their families safe from the earthquakes. And so there was this idea like um, of the people who live among the city or within the city, there was like this constant state of fear of at any given moment that like literally the ground beneath our feet will become unstable. And so there's this like real on, ongoing sort of fear, which by the way, if you live at that level, 
level of anxiety all the time, that does something to you. If you if you ever lived at like at a point where at any given moment something is going to go wrong and it's going to just crush everything that I know, like everything is so fragile and at any given moment, the whole thing might just collapse. If you've ever lived at that level of anxiety, that's the group of people that Paul's writing to. They've literally lived in a city where that could happen at any minute. And so he's talking to them. And I think it's kind of beautiful that he's connecting like, like maybe when we begin to really buy into the voice of the accuser, it's a lot like living in a city that at any given moment could have a devastating earthquake. Like we're always on edge and we're always like aware that something terrible might be about to happen. And so... He writes to this group of people and he says, but those of you who stay connected to what we're doing here, for those of you who stay connected to the story that God is telling, I will make you a pillar in the temple. What is a pillar? A pillar is a symbol of security and stability. So if you're writing to a group of people who understand earthquake culture and who understand like at any given moment, the whole thing might just collapse and you begin talking about like, yeah, but in reality, you're, you're like a pillar. What's he saying? He's saying, the whole thing, there's, there's a deeper stability here than you can possibly see. He's using the language of their own fears, and he's saying, maybe you don't have to live like that. It's beautiful. It's profound what he's saying. And then take a look, uh, look at how he finishes it towards the end of verse 12. After he says the thing about the pillar, he says, Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven, and I will also write on them my new name. In other words, I will remind them of who they were always meant to be. I will remind them, I will remind you that no matter what the voices in your head might say, no matter what all the lies about you that maybe you've believed, I will remind you that in, in reality you are loved and you are enough. And so this this beautiful reminder of, and again, he doesn't say a word of like, okay, now you got to do this, this, and this because, you know, you got to get better at all this stuff. And which, it's not like he's against that. I mean, clearly that's, that's shown up in, in the other you know, in the other letters. What's interesting is he doesn't say it here. Why? Because the, this group of people has no idea who they are. They bought into the lies about them for so long that you can't just start like listing off things to do because that doesn't even make any sense. In churches, quite frankly, a lot of the time, we spend a whole lot of time telling people what to do and not nearly enough time telling, just telling people who they are. Because who you are is loved. Who you are is forgiven. Who you are is enough. And if you don't believe that, then telling people what to do doesn't matter anyway. And so, and so what, this beautiful thing that John does in the middle of all these seven letters, he simply just, he just kind of pauses and he says, I need you to understand who you are. You are loved. You are enough. You are forgiven. All the lies about you aren't true. And so I think maybe the question that we're left with is, what are the lies about you that you have believed What are the things, when you hear the voice of the accuser in your own head, what are the things that it says? When you start to to buy into all the ways that you feel like you're not enough, what does that look like? And in what ways, what, what would it look like for you to silence that voice? What would it look like for you to crush that beneath your own feet? And so, um, I think... I think the beautiful invitation here is to allow for the possibility that we are healing, that we are invited to be healed. Um, maybe there's something, maybe you have, have been carrying guilt around for a really long time and you've done everything you can to make things better. And for whatever reason, you feel like it's just not enough. And so it's, it may, maybe the thing where this needs to start is you need to forgive yourself 
for something because you've already been forgiven for it. So, um, so maybe one of the ways we stop believing the lies about ourselves is to let ourselves off the hook and forgive ourselves for the ways that we've already been forgiven. And this is different, by the way. This is different than, like, conviction or, like, feeling the need to, like, improve and grow. Like, that's all part. That's an important part of the journey. This is, this is, not, this is not that. This is not like, oh, I should really work on this. This should get better. Th- this is not that. What this is, this is what it looks like when there's a tape playing in your head and it's just playing on repeat over and over and over and over again. And no matter what you do and no matter what you believe about yourself, it will not stop playing. And so John is writing to this group of people and he's saying, it's time to stop the tapes. It's time, it's time to silence the lies that you have believed about you. And sometimes that means you need to forgive yourself in all, for all the things that you cannot let yourself off the hook for. Maybe for some of us it's, I need to accept my own acceptedness. I need to accept the fact that I am loved and that the work is done. Maybe it's, I need to receive some grace and some peace. So we're going to take communion and... One of the beautiful things about communion is it reminds us that we are invited to receive something beautiful and holy. We are reminded to receive something that is loaded with peace and grace. And maybe that's the thing that we need most today. So um, as, as, as we consider, like, what's the voice of the accuser? Like, what are the things that we believed about ourselves? Maybe for you, you've never connected with this Jesus story at all because every time you've ever heard the word Jesus spoken out loud, it's come with all, like, the list of things that you're not good and, and the list of all the ways that you're not enough. And, and all you see are all, of, um, all the ways that you could never be loved. And so we want to invite you into a better story. We want to invite you into a truer story. We want to invite you to realize that you are loved and you are forgiven and you are enough. And if all you've ever seen of Jesus are people who, who say things that are loaded with hate and judgment, then that's not the Jesus that we are here to discuss. But maybe for some of us, we've, we, we, can't, we come from a long line of church tradition and the voice of the accuser, the voice of I'm not enough, the voice of uh, I am unloved. It's, it's actually the voice of maybe like a youth pastor <laughs> or like a camp counselor or someone who maybe meant well, but like gave you a lot of guilt and shame and fear that you had to sort of carry around with you for a long time. And so maybe, maybe one of the things that we're invited to do is to acknowledge where those voices have come from. And if you are, if, if that voice has come from a place of maybe, maybe mismanaged religious discussion, maybe it's time to heal from that. As well, maybe it's time to forgive the people who didn't know any better. Maybe it's time to begin to believe things about yourself that aren't the lies of you're not enough and you are unloved. So we're all invited to the table. If you don't want to, if you don't want to participate in communion, that's totally okay. Um, but if you do want to, please come. You are welcome because we believe that Jesus says that you are enough and that you are loved and you are forgiven and that you are offered grace and peace whenever you want it. So let me pray for us, and then we will take communion. God, we thank you for acknowledging how soul-draining the voice of the accuser can become. We thank you for empowering us with something better. We thank you for meeting us where we are, that in the moments where we have little strength, you interact with us at that place, and you say, let's just heal for a minute. Let's just silence this voice for just a minute. For those of us who have believed the lies about ourselves, 
May we silence that voice. May we believe a better truth. May we believe that we are loved and we are forgiven. May we believe that the work is done and we are invited to the table exactly as we are. For those of us who are healing, may we find rest. For those of us who are relearning things about ourselves, may we find grace and truth and peace and beauty. And as we come and we take the bread and the cup, may we remember that we, we sit among those who are also wounded and journeying and struggling. We sit among those who are without strength. And that we are all trying to believe a true thing about ourselves. That we are trying to silence the lies that we have believed for too long. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.